So good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this outspoken event. My name is Stephen Lang. Uh, I'm a local author, and I'll be your host today for our conversations with uh, Kari Gislason and Richard Feidler. Before we start today's proceedings, I believe it's appropriate that we take a moment to respectfully acknowledge the Jinnaburra people as traditional owners of the land on which we've gathered. They're the keepers of the ancient stories of this place. I'd like also to acknowledge those whose ongoing efforts to protect and promote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island culture creates a legacy for future elders and leaders, and not incidentally, a more tolerant, a better Australia. Such a thing is possible in this country. Slowly but surely, with steps forward and steps backwards, we grow towards it. I'd like also to acknowledge you, our audience, for being so flexible with times and dates for our outspoken events. When Richard Feidler offered to come up on a Sunday afternoon, we were initially very doubtful as to whether people would, get, would come out at this time of day. So how, <laughs> how, how, wrong, how wrong can you be? I think we could have filled the, uh, the hole twice over. Uh, one ticket buyer said that she didn't care what time of day Richard was coming. If it was 3 a.m., she'd still be here. So Richard, it seems, is a very popular man. But so too is our first guest for this evening, Kari Gislason, who also happens to be a good friend of Mr. Feidler's. They recently travelled together to Iceland to record stories of the Icelandic sagas and are, I believe, planning another trip this northern winter. The first trip gave rise to a series on ABC Radio and a live show version of the same performed last month at the Brisbane Powerhouse entitled Icelandic Sagas. And uh, to, we're going to do a little bit break, of a break from our usual no protocol here in that when I've finished talking to um, Richard, Kari's going to come back up on the stage to take questions from the audience as well because they have travelled together so much and it would be a shame not to have his input into that. So Kari is, a, is the author of two books, the memoir The Promise of Iceland, which was shortlisted for the Queensland Premier's Literary Awards, and the novel which came out last year, The Ashburner. Kari was born in Iceland, moved to England when he was 10, and then Australia when he was 14. As well as memoir and fiction, Kari publishes scholarly articles, travel writing, and reviews. He lectures in creative writing and literature studies at QUT, and his PhD thesis was on the subject of Icelandic literature. So please welcome Kari Gislason to Milano. Hello. Hi. I just want to say that I would come out any time for Richard Feidler as well. <laughs> I, uh, uh, and actually, most, most of my life these days seems to be just that, yeah, come, coming out for Richard Feidler. <laughs> but it's the, it's the Ashburner we're talking about now. So Good. It's a, and and, and it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a beautifully written and deeply evocative novel of, of uh, youth and its perplexities. But it's not exactly a coming-of-age novel, but the central character, Ted, I think it would be fair to say, does grow towards something throughout the novel. Yeah, Ted's trying to work things out. I mean, uh, he's lost something, you know. Uh, he's, lost, uh, he's lost people in his life, and he needs to try to work that out. And when I was uh, planning this book, uh, I actually based it, uh, just to kind of link up to, to, to Richard um, and to, this, to the Iceland trip, I, I based the structure around a saga, uh, around one of the, the family sagas of Iceland. There's a particular 
saga that involves a, a, a really unpleasant man, a man called Eyal Scuttler Grimson. He's the sort of, yeah. yeah he, we he's, won't ask you to spell that. Well, <laughs> he, he's pretty much like he sounds. Um, the saga describes him as the ugliest man who ever lived in Iceland. Um, and he's also my direct ancestor. Uh, <laughs> anyway, Eyal has this kind of warrior's life, but he's a poet. And towards the end of his life, he, he loses a son uh, who drowns. And, and he takes himself away and he decides to, that he wants to die. Uh, but his family decide to save him and they send for his daughter. And she coaxes Ayat into, into writing a poem about his son. And through that act, through the, the poetic act, he recovers enough, just, just enough to keep going. And eventually they go downstairs and Ayat delivers the poem to the house. And actually, that's what the Ashburner is. It's, it's a poem that Ted is delivering uh, to, to people after he's kind of worked through some losses in his life. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the title of the book is a beautiful title, and it takes, I'm not going to say what it means, because it, you don't actually find out what it means till really late in the mm. piece, but, but it, I was kept wondering, why is this book called The Ashburner, Ashburner. until we got to the end? But it, was, it's a, it is a very poetic and a, and a rather beautiful and it gives a very beautiful perspective on what he's been doing the whole time. Well, the, um, the title Ashburn, it comes from a Norse phrase, Aska Brenna, uh, to mean to burn the ashes. Uh, and the title, you're right, my publisher also was a little bit worried about this you know, title because they didn't, it takes a while to realise what, what's burning uh, in this book. But that came from uh, a couple of sources. My, my grandfather, uh, Harold, on my English side, and, and his wife, Mildred, they never really got along very well. Um, the story I tell to il illustrate their marriage was that um, when my grandmother died, um, she didn't leave any money for anybody, and people were wondering why there wasn't an inheritance. Uh, but then my grandfather started looking around the house, and eventually he stumbled across toilet paper, and not just one roll of toilet paper, a whole room basically filled with toilet paper. She'd been buying stacks and stacks of toilet paper. And inside every roll of toilet paper was a bundle of $100 bills. Uh, now, she, she had secreted away her, her fortune in the one place she thought Harold would never go. Uh, uh, he would never bother to change the toilet paper. And, and he, she just assumed that the daughters would find it. Uh, but in the end, it was, it was, it was Harold. And he spent the money, I'm, I'm sorry to say, he spent the money on a red sports car. Uh, now, when Harold died, we had to make a decision. Um, did we put them back together again, Harold and Mildred? This couple had never really uh, gotten along. And so we went to, uh, to the place where they had, had once been happy. And it was a town called Maxville. Um, you might know it. It's about yes. halfway, halfway to Sydney. And it was the one place in their marriage where it looked like things might work out. And so we, we joined their ashes together uh, at Maxville. And that's where this book is set. And that's where I got the first idea for the book. This idea of what do you do with, with ashes? How do you burn something that is already burnt? You know, what happens uh, mm. to the ashes once you start going over them and over them again? Mm. Yeah, yeah. One of the things in the book that, that is particularly important to the book, but I particularly liked, was this idea of how, when we're young, friendship affects our affinities. So what we have is Ted, who meets the slightly older than him, Anthony, yeah. and kind of falls in love with him, or the idea of him. Yeah. But Anthony is already in love with Claire, 
And so therefore Ted has to also somehow be in love with Claire and you yeah. get that kind of triangle which yeah. is so prevalent in those friendship situations. Well, that, that's it. And that's exactly what I was trying to do in this, in this book, was explore those, you know, those complicated relationships that you get into, into your, in your teens, where a few people are in love with each other at the same time, or it's kind of hard to decide who's going out with who. And, and I think my, my idea for the, for the book was that it was more like a love circle, that these three characters needed each other, and they needed to be in love with each other in order to get through those years uh, into early 20s. Well, I mean, that was one of the things that was slightly unusual was the mm. character of Anthony. He wasn't jealous of Ted's love of Claire, which no. was kind of slightly unusual, really, because normally that's the, that, this is the thing that kind of throws that triangle apart, isn't it? Yeah, well, Anthony's different. He, he, he has always the, the desire to conceptualise his emotions as well as experience them. And so he is jealous. I think he is jealous of Ted and, and his love for Claire, but at the same time, he's conceptualising it as an artistic moment, that there's something beautiful about them both being in love with her. Yeah, I know. And it sounds odd, but it's just that moment uh, in late teenage years when you can kind of do both. Uh, see your, your love affairs as both something very felt, but also that you're, you're experimenting with the idea of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I was also curious about something else. Which your first book is a memoir, mm -hmm. and now suddenly you've, you've moved over into fiction, very successfully, I should say, as well. Thank and, you. And uh, how was it for you to dive between the two? I think the thing that surprised me was, you know, I'd written a book uh, about myself, um, and it's a very personal story. It's about my family, uh, about my father and my mother, and it's about my own relationship with an absent father. And I thought that was about as self-revealing uh, as you could get. But what I discovered uh, flipping across to fiction was that fiction makes much greater demands on disclosure. You oh, know, absolutely. absolutely you, you agree. I mean, you, you, because you have to inhabit your characters and because the reader doesn't excuse any distance between you and them in fiction, I mean, the strange thing about memoir is that we, we understand if the, the author doesn't want to give us everything. But there's no room for that in fiction. And so you actually have to reveal much more of yourself in fiction than you do in nonfiction. And well, But this is interesting, bringing that thing in about your father there, because in The Promise to Iceland, you were looking for this father who had been absent in some ways, yeah? Mm. But in this book, The Ashburner, the father is enormously present. Mm. I mean, extraordinarily, uh, extraordinarily present. Yeah. I think he's my, my favourite person uh, in this book. Uh, he, he's the local magistrate, and he, he, his wife has, has passed away, and he's bringing up uh, Ted on his own. Uh, and he sort of, I don't know about his, his, his presence, though, in Ted's life. He, he's, he's extremely loving, and, and he, he demonstrates his affection for Ted. But every night, he takes himself uh, away, and he loses himself in opera. Uh, that's where he's really at home, because in, in opera, he, he can kind of hear the, the sound of his, his dead wife's voice. And I think it's that... That, that torn feeling of always being a little bit removed from the ones we love really intensely, or the way that the ones we love intensely sometimes have to take themselves away. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that's the common point between the two books, that we, we don't ever entirely understand the people that we are most desperate to understand. Yeah. Yeah. But it also seemed to me a very kind of contemporary relationship between a father and son, because mm. I, I was born in 1951, so... 
I can't imagine that having a kind of relationship with my father from that generation, yeah. that your character, he's born in 1988, if my calculations are correct, and he, so by the time he reaches teenage years, we're, we're just approaching the, the millennium, and it, it's that kind of thing of, um, or in the millennium, aren't we? We're in yeah. 2006 or something like that. So it's possible for, for a father and a son to have a different kind of relationship. Is that is that? Certainly the, the case for me. I mean, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a father of, of two boys. And I think, yeah, I mean, I, I spend a lot of time with them uh, and talk to them and, and cook for them and do those things. And perhaps there's something of that in, in Ted's relationship with his father. But then the other factor is that um, it's just... Ted and his father, you know, uh, his father's name is, is Theodore, yeah. um, and it's just the two of them, and I mean, that's how I was brought up, I was brought up yeah. on my own with my mother, and in those situations, there is a little bit of a, uh, you know, a, there's an intensification of the relationship in there, a codependency develops, and that's certainly the case with these two, they need each other, and they're keeping an eye on each other all the time. Hmm, okay. Yeah. One of the other things that you're using in the book is this quotation from Emily Dickinson, moving on from kind of family. So there is the family, which is the father, but there is also the family that we choose yeah. as well. I can't quite remember what the... The soul chooses Selects its... Selects own society, the, yeah. The soul chooses its own society, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Emily Dickinson is, is, is the favourite poet of, of, of Anthony. You know, Anthony's in love with Emily Dickinson. Um, the other sort of person I quote in the book is, uh, is uh, the second UN Secretary General, uh, a man called Doug Hammarskjöld. Yes. Um, and he's the sort of, he's the, he's the poet for Ted. He's the one that Ted sort of bases his, his, his life on and his choices. Um, the thing that these characters are doing is they're trying to uh, create a family or a bond that will help them cope with the influence uh, of, of their parents. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Anthony has had a bad experience of, of his father, yeah. and he needs to find people who will get him through that, uh, people that will help him recover. And, and Ted, although Ted's not you know, damaged in the same way, uh, Ted is searching for a group that kind of recognise his, his, his sensibilities. And so I, I think that's very important at that age, isn't it? That we're looking for people who kind of confirm our identities, but also that help us move out of the, the influence, the direct influence of our parents to, to help us understand how we're going to be adults. Yeah. yeah. But in many ways, Claire and Ted fail Anthony in that respect, don't they? I mean, they don't, they don't mitigate the effect of his father on him. I think that's right. I think ultimately the, the, they, 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 they fail Anthony. I mean, I think he... They lose him, um, and that's that's really the driving tension of the of the novel is that they're unable. You're not always able to to drag people out of the situations that they're in. Mm. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things about this book is that it's also unashamedly literary, which I I really quite like with its quotes from Emily Dickinson and the uh, former UN Secretary General whose name I'm not even going to try and pronounce, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, but yeah. Th there, there we go. Um, th there's, there's a lovely scene in uh, Copenhagen yeah. where the central character, Ted, is having terrible trouble making a decision, and it, it's, it's almost Hamletian in its way, and I, I wondered if this was a deliberate allusion that you were making here. <laughs> to Hamlet? Yeah. yeah, well, you know, Ted is a bit of a Hamlet. 
um, I don't know how you feel about Hamlet, but I mean, I'm sort of on the side of you know, D.H. Lawrence, who hated hated Hamlet and hated the way that he kind of sniffed around his mother and, and was always worrying about what to do and didn't act quickly enough. Yeah. And Ted is a bit like that. And, and I think some people who've read the book um, have said that they want to give Ted you know, a good shake. Um, and, I, and I don't blame them for that. And there's probably a side of myself as well that I'm exploring there, which is the, you know, the kind of slow burn, you know, where things are gradually developing and eventually you will have to act. But sometimes it takes someone, I think in that scene, someone actually ends up pushing Ted uh, off his seat. Yeah. Yes, and yes. just, you know, is so frustrated with him, just pushes him off. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. 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 I mean, but that's a part of the narrative drive of the novel is, you mm. know, that sooner or later, he has to do something, otherwise you're not going to. Otherwise, the novel will fail in its in its pretension. But you're kind of waiting there, begging, begging him to to pick up the phone for God's sake. Yeah. Dial her. Work. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And 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 I, I I don't I don't entirely wrap things up, but you do get the sense towards the end. At least I hope that towards the end, Ted has reached the point where he he understands himself well enough to know how to act on his desires. You know, he knows that he can reach out and grab it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, look, it's a really, I, I highly recommend this book. I think it's one of the, the, the best Australian novels I've read in a long time. I really Thank liked you. it. Thank you very much indeed for coming to talk to us about it today. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.